Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I am joined by Professor Timothy Stark. Tim, how are you today? Doing just great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. We're just coming out of the 4th of July weekend. It's the the morning after the 4th, so so thanks for uh, coming on uh, right after the holidays. Sure, no no problem. Yeah, and... uh, how how has the pandemic been affecting your university and your teaching? Your your uh, remote teaching quite a bit, or or how's that been affecting you? Well, we're finally pretty much back to normal, and uh, students can attend class in person or attend virtually, and I do it synchronously. So when I'm giving teaching class. I am live online and in person, so the virtual people can ask questions, participate, just like an in-person student. So that we're pretty much back to normal. In the beginning of the pandemic, we went all virtual. So, and that that wasn't really a, a big problem for me. But uh, you know, it, with a lot of travel, you always have to make up classes somehow. So yeah it really wasn't a big big transition yeah so do you think the virtual learning aspect is going to stay with us for a long time do you think it's here to stay yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. because i was already teaching my classes online uh through our online program and every semester for my grad classes i'd have people from literally around the world so i i just see that piece growing more and maybe the in-class shrinking a little. Yeah, you, you lose a little bit. I'm in a PhD program studying remotely. You do lose a little bit when you're just dialed in, but there's huge advantages. Like you say, you can be anywhere in the world and attend a class. Right. Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education. Oh, okay. I started my bachelor's degrees from the University of Delaware. Then I graduated and went to San Francisco to work for the geotechnical firm Woodward Clyde Consultants in downtown San Francisco. Oh, yeah, that was a big one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you remember that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they, it was really a impressive firm and quickly knew I had to go to grad school. And of course, once you get to San Francisco, there's only one grad school in the world yeah. across the yeah. bay right. in, in Berkeley, where I met Professor Mike Duncan, who supervised my master's project on slope failures in the Berkeley, Oakland Hills. And that led to a PhD under Mike's supervision on the upstream slope failure in San Luis Dam in the Central Valley of California. And I've been studying slope stability, static and seismic ever since. And uh, it's really been a, a 
great topic to study. Yeah. So, how long did you work at Woodward Clyde? About let's see, twelve. About fifteen months uh, before starting yeah. graduate school, and then once I started at Berkeley, I worked the summers with them. Oh, okay. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. And well, once you got your PhD, what what happened then? I jumped into academia. Uh, starting my career at San Diego State University for let's see, two years or uh, maybe it's three years, and then moving to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and have been here ever since. Yeah, yeah. So, what what are some of your favorite uh, courses to teach? My slope stability course is really uh, important to me. It's a graduate level course. It is basically our earth dams and embankments class that Professor Ralph Peck started way back when and it migrated to uh, Skip Hendren and then me. But mm -hmm. given where we are with the stability of many different types of structures from tailings facilities to heap leach pads to geosynthetic line slopes to earth dams as well, I've really made it a earth structures class instead of the original title of the class was earth dams yeah back in the day so so that that's really big uh, for me uh, the graduate level and undergraduate levels foundation engineering class where i teach shallow and deep foundations retaining structures mm -hmm. uh, shallow foundations so footings rafts and a right. little bit of slope stability yep yeah yeah it's it's uh, good that you work the heap leach facilities into your earth structures um, because some of them are you know amongst the largest uh, man-made features in the world yeah i worked on one in nevada that was over 500 feet tall so they can be very significant yep Tim, Tim, you've been uh, studying and assessing the Samarco tailings failure from 2015. Uh, what what can you tell us about that? Yeah, Brian, I, I got into that uh, through my stability or slope stability class. And of course, when a big event like that happens, it uh, generates some interest. And then, of course, I got involved in some of the litigation afterwards of it. And that mm. allowed me a chance to dive into the failure and look at a lot of factors, one of which being the three earthquakes that occurred about 20 to 30 minutes before the failure with the epicenter located just downstream of the left setback area. Yeah. Yeah, and historically, we would think that such a small earthquake wouldn't cause, well, certainly wouldn't cause cyclic liquefaction. Uh, but they were, I, I'm surprised that people could even feel those events because I think they're like magnitude two and a half. Yeah, roughly two, two and a half. I think the main shock uh, is three. I don't have the magnitudes, but the important thing is 
as part of the litigation, I was able to see the depositions and some of the witness uh, descriptions are in the panel review report. But some of the key observations, a computer falling off a desk, mm-hmm. damage to buildings, and these are the buildings that are in plant one and two, which are, say, three to six kilometers away from the dam. Yeah. So people clearly understanding an earthquake was occurring even that far from the dam. So the real new wrinkle, I think, from from this case is you mentioned the triggering of liquefaction. And that's usually how we've always assessed liquefaction. We go into a triggering curve of some type. Yeah. We go up to the curve. If it plots above it, it may be liquefaction and if it plots below it it didn't liquefy and it's been a black and white on off switch yeah you're 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 talking about the plot of csr versus crr yes correct right yeah okay Okay. yeah and and it's just black or white so if you plot below the triggering curve that's it you're done yeah you didn't trigger yeah but but fundow says you know let's look at what liquefaction is and and what it is is a buildup of poor water pressure mm-hmm. so we can build that poor water pressure up statically or dynamically and that can be due to earthquakes it can be due to other vibra- vibratory sources as well and what we want to do is estimate that level of static and dynamic pore water pressure and compare it to the total stress because yeah. if if the effective stress gets close to zero and i'll talk about that in just a minute we have liquefaction or certainly mobilization of a liquefied strength yeah So, um, at Fundau, how how has that changed our thinking? I, I, I think you're saying forget about trying to figure out if it's going to liquefy under this given design earthquake event, because design earthquake events can be um, helpful to um, quantify. But given Fundau had such a small earthquake event that triggered the liquefaction. Um, we we might just say, well, forget about if there's an earthquake because magnitude two and a half or three is is enough to set off uh, static or flow liquefaction. It doesn't need to be a magnitude five and a half or bigger. Right, and and Brian, the key to the earthquake at Fundau is not not the magnitude but the duration, and mm. we can have low-level shaking with a loose material that builds up pore water pressure slowly. And if you look in the panel report, there are cyclic direct simple shear test results that show the pore water pressure building up even under small CSR or shaking. And at Fundau, the three earthquakes occurred within four minutes. And so that was about... Uh, three minutes 
or so, three, a little more of shaking going on. So it, it's like a long duration event. So you might, an analogy might be a long freight train and there's evidence of liquefaction occurring under repeated loads of a long freight train. Yeah, okay, okay, I gotcha. So, so where do we, how do we use that in the future? We've, we've got uh, some new, new ways of thinking. So how do we apply it? Great question. So, um, Jala Lin and I have modified our prior flow assessment procedure. This was published in 2003 in the Canadian Geotechnical Journal. Uh, the authors are Olson and Stark, and that only has three steps. We now have five steps to the procedure. Mm. And one of those steps involves the generation of poor water pressure under dynamic events. And again, it can be seismic, it can be operation derived. And you compare that to a pore pressure ratio. So, for example, a ratio of 0.7. If you have a ratio, and that's a total pore pressure ratio of 0.7, you would assign a liquefied strength to it. So any segment along your failure surface that you think static plus seismically induced pore water pressures are 0.7 or greater, you would assign a liquefied strength to that segment and then conduct your post-triggering, post-liquefied strength analysis, which is the last step of the five steps and also the last step in the prior procedure as well. Mm -hmm. the, so other, the other new step is a mm -hmm. static liquefaction step. So we, we go through first step is the same then a static liquefaction step which is new and that's checking the current database of static liquefaction case histories and round numbers for a podcast if your cone tip resistance normalized to one tsf is less than four megapascals you're in that database where we've had static failures and there's a little more to it there, but okay, let's say you don't meet the static criteria, then you go to the triggering of liquefaction, like you and I were just talking about. You go to the triggering curve. If you trigger, boom, that segment gets liquefied strength. If you don't trigger, it does not get liquefied strength, and you go to the next step, which is the pore pressure generation step that I just mentioned. And if through pore pressure generation, both statically and seismically, you get to an RU of 0.7 or greater, that segment would get a liquefied strength and you estimate the liquefied strength using Stark and Mesri or Stark and Olson, which are updated in this upcoming paper as well. And then finally, the fifth step is post-triggering, post-liquefied strength stability analysis. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a really important change that you're um publishing hopefully 
hopefully publishing. Yeah. We haven't submitted it yet, but there, it's under review by a number of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at Fundao, there were two important materials, the slimes and the sands. And which of the two uh, were the more important uh, with respect to static liquefaction? Definitely the tailing sands. Um, yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because the slimes are at a fairly deep depth. And mm -hmm. if, if you look at the depth of the slimes for that, for the basal extrusion to induce liquefied strength or liquefaction, that would occur at a depth of like 50 meters or in U.S. Mm. terms, 150 feet. Yeah. Whereas our liquefaction case histories show a depth to liquefaction of 50 feet or about 15 meters. In other words, limited case histories below that depth of 15 meters. So, yeah, yeah. because the total stresses are too high. Mm hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned the, the Stark and Olson or, or Stark and Mesri uh, plot of liquefied underrange shear strength. Have you, and, and all the data works, uh, it's a really good correlation. It's a very tight data set. Have you come across any data points that don't fit well in that correlation? Well, we, we've updated it in this upcoming paper. Um, mm -hmm. The, as I remember, there may be one or two points that lie outside of the upper and lower bounds that we've had in prior papers, but the rest of the data fits within those upper and lower bounds. And so we're actually keeping the average trend line the same yeah, in, yeah, in the yeah. upcoming paper. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Tim, I don't think of any other questions that I haven't asked you. Is there anything in in that topic that you'd like to talk about that I didn't ask? Well, just consider vibratory sources, uh, uh, because we're we're in a situation where you have a loose deposit, and we we know they can generate positive pore pressures when they are subjected to some shear stresses. So. It's not a black and white. It triggered or it didn't trigger, you know. And so that that would be the takeaway. Yeah. So I I do quite. I started doing quite a bit of work in Brazil, and right now, uh, tailings dam owners are very cautious of any kind of vibration, including drill rigs. Yep. And it would be it'd be uh, an interesting. Uh, study to see what what is the lower limit at least on vibrations that you should be concerned about right exactly yeah. that, that's and exactly I, the situation and especially a drilling technique such as sonic drilling where mm, the whole advancement is on based on vibratory right right yeah it, uh, it's difficult when we're concerned about vibrations, but we also need geotechnical parameters for our assessments. You know, we need instrumentation and, and things like that. So you, 
made a drill rig, but you need to be um, quite cautious until we understand a little bit more about vibration levels and their their uh, uh, potential for causing liquefaction. Right. Or, and Brian, maybe instead of causing liquefaction, causing poor pressure generation. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, some 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 topics for future studies, I suppose. Yep. Okay. Well, Tim, I, I think we uh, talked about everything I wanted to. Did you have any key takeaways or pearls of wisdom you could leave us with? look at possible sources of poor pressure generation which can reduce the effective stress yeah and because if we reduce the effective stress we we reduce the shear strength yeah perfect okay you've given me a lot to think about and one of the main reasons i have this podcast is to make myself a little bit smarter so you've helped me in that regard today tim and i appreciate that great brian well again thanks for having me and uh, enjoyed it yeah, and, and thanks again, and, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Okay, Brian, see ya. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.